may be seated. Amen. If you're sitting there at home, you can take your seat and get comfortable. Settle in. I was told this morning, I have no time limit. Hi. Because uh, nobody is in junior church waiting to be let go. That's awesome. Uh, I, I want to uh, begin with a couple of uh, remarks. I have some thank yous. Um, last Sunday, last Sunday's service was very special to me, and I appreciate uh, everybody who had a part in that, uh, all of our church family, uh, family and friends who traveled uh, here to participate. Some uh, joined online. Um, some surprises happened along the way. It was just a wonderful day, a very encouraging and affirming day for me, and I'm excited and uh, then we have today, and uh, we have been looking forward to this Sunday when I would begin the first little series of messages, and uh, about the middle of the week we started to realize, wow, we have some weather challenges that might give us some trouble. We started to talk about that and pray about that, and, and I appointed a team of 10, um, what, what did we call this, pastors? Pastors Emergency Weather-Related Snow Closing Advisory Council. And um, we got some good advice and, and we prayed. And uh, this morning it was obvious that we needed to make some, some decisions about how to do today. And I want to thank the people who made today happen. Uh, Jody with the communication, Pastor Tim, uh, uh, Director Catherine did such a great job getting something ready for our Kingdom Kids Wonderful, wonderful work. Our worship team are here and led worship to an empty room, but they weren't, they weren't leading an empty room. They were praising God who is always here and leading the few of us who are here and leading you at home in worship, and I'm just so excited about that. Uh, I grew up in a family of six children, mom and dad. Uh, my mom was a special woman, uh, worked a full-time job, and uh, raised a husband and six children. Uh, and uh, she was a magnificent cook, a, a quick cook. She would get home from work and get something ready for the, for the crew to eat. And uh, there was one rule. Uh, there was one rule about mom's cooking. If you complain about the cooking, you wash the dishes. And we quickly learned not to complain about mom's cooking. And there wasn't really any reason to complain anyway, because she was a good cook. And then I got married, and Kelly, who has uh, learned to cook, um, has never made a, a meal that I didn't like, except for that one time. And uh, we have agreed over the years that I will not complain about my wife's cooking either. And the reason I don't complain about the cooking is because I know who's doing the cooking. I know, I know that person loves me. And I trust her. And for the same reason, I don't complain about the weather. I know who directs the weather. I know he loves me, and I trust him. So I'm not complaining about today's weather. And if you're sitting at home, you're warm and safe and dry inside, don't complain about the weather. The one who chooses it loves you, and you can trust him. Uh, I want to introduce this series of messages uh, this morning, three messages it's going to be. Um, my first working title for this series of messages was, Who Are We? And, and then I had another thought. 
And uh, so the actual title of this series of messages is, This Is Us, and I stole this from National Broadcasting Corporation television show, very popular television show. As a matter of fact, um, this television show, This Is Us, just uh, premiered its final season. And uh, some of you are watching that show. Some of you have heard about that show. I am not, I am not uh, endorsing that show. NBC has not sponsored this message this morning. There are no NBC trucks in the parking lot. So I'm not going to say anything else about their show, except I stole their title. So I feel like I had to give them credit. That, uh, that show tells the story of one particular family over several generations. And so uh, this series of messages that I'm beginning this morning is doing that same thing. It's telling the story of one particular family over several generations. And it's our family the family that meets here, the family that calls itself Harmony Baptist Church. Now, it's really interesting because we often consider the church being the place where we go. I'm going to church. But today, it's very obvious that the church is not in this place. Some of it is, part of it is. But the church is right where you are, in your living room. Maybe you're laying in your bed still this morning watching this on uh, your iPad. You know who you are. I won't call out your name. I do know one person has already publicly declared that she is wearing her slippers. The slippers that she famously mentioned or were famously mentioned in last Sunday's service. This is us. We are a church. And this Sunday, I'm going to focus on what that means, that we are a church. Next week, uh, we're going to talk about what it means to be a Baptist church. Uh, Does anybody even care? Does it matter anymore that we are a Baptist church? Why does it matter? Should it matter? We'll talk about that next Sunday. And then the third Sunday uh, will be uh, our particular identity as Harmony Baptist Church. You might notice that there's some, there's some subtle projection of ideas here in the relative size of those three words. And the most important word is the word at the bottom, uh, and that is the word church. And we're going to focus on that this morning. What is a church anyway? I'm going to tell you the Greek word so that you will know that I know, because if I don't tell you, you won't know that I know. And, of course, it's important that you know that I know. And it's very important that I know that you know that I know. And we could go on like that. If, if, I, was, if I was trying to fill time, we could keep going for several minutes on, on that. But we're not. The Greek word that we have translated in our English Bibles as church is the word ekklesia. You've probably heard this word. Uh, You all know that much Greek, at least, ecclesia. It's a word that means a gathering of those summoned or called. And it's not specifically a religious gathering, though that is how uh, we have come to understand it. And it is a word that is made up in Greek of two smaller words, ek, 
which means out of, and kaleo, which is a verb meaning to call. And so you put those two words together, ekklesia, you and I, we are the ones who have been called out. We have been called out from the world and into this new thing that we call the church. That word appears more than a hundred times in the New Testament, 114 times to be exact, and it sometimes refers to one of four different things, four different ways that the word church is used in the New Testament. The first way is um, the church is the total number of all believers in Jesus Christ all over the world at any given moment. And um, as we were getting ready to start worship this morning, we prayed because we recognized that though the number of people in this room this morning is relatively small, because we are live on the internet, we could be preaching right now to the whole world. I peeked and I saw that there are some people that are logged in this morning from as far away as the state of Florida. Now that's a long drive. But it's a short walk to the living room. And uh, it's pretty awesome that we are part of one great church wherever in the world we find ourselves. We are one church, one with one Lord, with one faith, with one baptism. Some of the very things that we sang in those songs this morning, in those, those beautiful hymns this morning. And thank you so much, worship team for the way that not only you um, led us in worship, but in the way that you prepared that for us. I appreciate that very much. That's the influence of, uh, of God in the preparation. Not only, not only does the pastor prepare for Sunday, but so does everyone else. And God's spirit is evident when everybody's preparation brings us to the same place together. It's just fantastic. The second place, so the second way the word church is used in the New Testament is uh, when refers to all of the believers in a particular area, region, or city, an area like a region like Galatia. Galatia is a part of what is modern day Turkey. The, the region of Galatia, which would have had several small cities and communities scattered throughout it, like uh, like Orange County, there are any number of churches in Orange County, but we might say the church in Orange County and collect all of the different believers meeting in all of the different places all over the mid-Hudson region or the Hudson River Valley or the great northeast of the United States. That's the church in the northeast. Or it could be a specific city, like the church at Ephesus, or the church in Middletown, or wherever else we might be. And uh, sometimes it will be used to refer to a specific, a very specific local assembly or local gathering of people, like a house church, for example. Uh, Paul writing in this little, uh, I call it one of the New Testament postcards. It's only a chapter long. Paul's letter to Philemon. Some people call it Philemon. I don't know. 
uh, Philemon's parents are not here to correct me. So I'm going to say Philemon. You say Philemon if you want to. We'll find out when we get to heaven if any of us was right. Probably somebody is, but I don't know if it's me or you. Paul writes in Philemon chapter, there's only one chapter, verse 1 and 2, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, probably his wife, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, probably their son, and to the church in your house. That's a very, very specific use of the word church to isolate one particular assembly of those who have been called out. And, uh, and then sometimes it is used, um, the fourth way that is used is in a more general, less specific way. Uh, any gathering of God's people assembled for worship. Hey, we went to church today. You went to church today, and you went to church online, perhaps. But for this particular moment, no matter which church you send your tithe check to, You are in church with us today, and welcome. We're glad you're here. So, uh, we are the church, and we are what God is doing in His creation and in His kingdom. We are the forefront of God's activity in the world. We are at the ragged cutting edge, the leading edge of God's work and his kingdom as it advances through human history. The church is God's plan A. You've probably heard this quote. It's been repeated so many times, I could not figure out who was the first one to say it. The church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. Does that mean God doesn't have a contingency plan if plan A fails? No, it means God doesn't need a contingency plan because God's plan does not, cannot, will not fail. We are God's plan and our success is guaranteed. Now for those of you who are listening who find the pastoral preaching art of alliteration to be fascinating. If you find it fascinating, and I know there are some of you who do, then feast your eyes on the following four statements of fact. Here we go. Jesus is the founder of the church. Listen to this from Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Wait, sorry, I got ahead of myself. There's another verse to read first. Uh, Ryan, please, that first slide, Matthew 16, verse 18. Thank you. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, if, if If you've ever... If you've ever sat under a teacher teaching the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology is the fancy word, the seminary word. You don't don't need to pay a lot of money to learn that word, by the way. I just told you what it is. Ecclesiology comes from ecclesia, the study of the church. 
and you will focus right here on this, this verse, Matthew 16, 18, and we'll point to that and we'll say, that's where Jesus first begins to talk about what he's doing about this church thing. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is the founder. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 tells us this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what he came for. He came to build this church. And in doing so, to call out people from among every tribe and kindred and nation. Some of the hymns will remind us. From every tribe, every people, every nation, every part of the globe. He will call out people to become a part of his church. This is uh, one of my favorite Christmas verses and probably the least recognized of all the Christmas passages. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus is the founder of the church. That's what he came to earth to do. To save, to seek, and to save the lost, and to bring us into his body, the church. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. Secondly, Jesus is the foundation of the church. Not only did he found it, not only did he build it, but he himself made himself the chief cornerstone of that church. Uh, this passage was read during our worship time this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. You are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We're going to come back to that idea in another minute. For no one... For no one, 1 Corinthians 3.11, can lay a foundation other than that which is already laid, that is, Jesus Christ. He is the founder and the foundation of the church. Third, Jesus is the focus of the church. Jesus is where our attention is focused, is riveted. It's about him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about the worship team. It's not about the ushers. It's not about the, the nursery workers. It's about all of us together drawing our focus upward to exalt the one who is above all. He, Jesus, is the head of the body, Colossians 1.18 says, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is first. He is above all. And anything that is second isn't even a close second. It's about him. It's about Jesus. I love that our worship team puts that in front of us con continuously. Our focus is on Jesus Christ. Here's uh, uh, another passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Jews 
demands signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ. Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. Folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called. To you and I. Both Jews and Greeks. Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. I love this. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Our focus as a church, as the church, is, is and always should be, with the grace and the help of God, always will be on Jesus Christ, our founder, our foundation, our focus, and the one who is the finisher for the church. I uh, chose this verse, Hebrews 12, 2, and I, and I chose, some of you will notice, from the King James Version, the one that I first uh, learned it in, because, because of the word finisher, which is not the word chosen by some of the more uh, contemporary translations. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author, that's the founder and foundation, and the finisher of our faith. And then we're reminded, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the finisher for the church. He brings it to completion. That's the idea that I want to put in front of you. And so to help us with that, I've got this second verse from Philippians 1, verse 6. I know that this is a familiar verse to you. But it gives us the idea that Jesus is the one who started it, who is doing it, and who promises to finish it. I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The church has taken its lumps through history. It's been knocked down. It's been driven underground. It's been hounded and persecuted. Brothers and sisters in the faith, those who are part of the called out ones, the ecclesia, the church, have shed blood for the sake of our common faith. But Jesus is faithful and will complete what he has promised to do. Okay, there's our four, there's our four alliterated points. Now I want to give you some metaphors. Metaphors that help us to understand what is in God's mind when he thinks about the church. Because you and I, we have ideas in our own minds about what we think about the church. But I think it's helpful for us as we consider this is us, who we are, to, to consider what does God have in mind as he is thinking all the time about his church. A metaphor is a figure of speech in which a word or a phrase literally denoting one kind of object or idea is used in place of another to suggest a likeness or analogy between them. 
And Webster's dictionary suggests, for example, someone is drowning in money. Anybody out there drowning in money? Throw us a lifeline, would you? Oh, I'm kidding about that. I'm kidding about that. But that was the one that, was the, that the dictionary offered. Drown, drowning in money, that's a metaphor. These word pictures help us get some color, some depth, some flavor to what the church is to God and therefore to us. So here are a few of these metaphors. The church is the household of God. In this image, the church, the household of God, makes, makes God the head of household. If he's filing an income tax, he files as head of household. Wouldn't that be interesting? What is God's net worth? Well, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. I remember that song. Do you remember that song as a child? He owns the rivers and the rocks and rills, the sun and stars that shine. Wonderful riches, more than tongue can tell. Do you know how the next line goes? He is my father, so they're mine as well. Isn't that awesome? God is head of his household. And a household, especially in the New Testament time, would, would include not only um, family, immediate family, wife, children, grandchildren, uh, relatives, but also any staff, any servants that might be employed in the household. But uh, God is the head of his household, and we, the church, are the household of God. Uh, Ephesians 2.19 says, So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. And 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, if, I, if, I, if it takes me longer to get to you than, than I hope, you will know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Isn't that a good information to have? How should we behave in God's household? And, and then Paul says, thinking about the household of God, he, he gets excited and he goes on to describe it in these words. The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We are the household of God, and we somehow represent in this world truth. Not just what is true, but the truth. The truth is one thing. You can, you can say a lot of things that are true, but the truth is just one thing. And we, the church, the household of God, uh, are a pillar and a buttress of that truth, God's truth. Second, the, the church is the people of God. Now, if we were still in the Old Testament era, we would say, of course, we're the people of God. We must be talking about the Jewish nation. That's how um, the people of God in the Old Testament are described. The descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. But, as the unfolding of Revelation progressed, and we get some of the later prophets, for example, when we finish this series, we're going to talk about Jonah, and we learn something in Jonah 
that was a surprise to the Old Testament idea of the people of God. And that is that God has more in mind and more in his plan than just one family. That the people of God was going to be bigger than Abraham's descendants. That he had a bigger plan than just for a single ethnic group. That he has a plan, in fact, for the whole world. We are the people of God. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10. There's quite a bit in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. Um, we're going to start with this one. Once you were not a people, you had no identity. You had nothing that, that put you in common. But now you are God's people. And if I'm going to be identified in any group, that's the group I want to be in. If If... If there are uh, labels of groups scattered around, and we could walk around and we could see um, which label do you want to pick up and put on your, hi, my name is, I belong to. Which group do you want to be a part of? If people of God is one of the possible groups, that's the one I want to be a part of. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thank God for that. And then Second uh, Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. Quoting from the Old Testament, Paul, Paul writes these words from God's mouth. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And he says, I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God, God makes you his son or daughter. He gives you his identity. He puts you in his group. He says, I choose you. Do you remember standing on the end line in the gymnasium in phys ed class? And the gym teacher says, everybody line up on the line. And he calls out a couple of captains and he says, uh, choose your team. Or if he was a better gym teacher, he, he said, uh, count off by two. And then um, if he's a really smart gym teacher, he says, count off by four. And then he says, ones and twos, you're on this team. Threes and fours, you're on. If he's really a smart gym teacher, he knows. Because kids quickly figure out how to line themselves up to get chosen for the same team. But if you and I are lining up on that end line and somebody is calling names, don't you want to be picked for God's team? I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. And you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Wow. There's a third metaphor. The church is the temple of God. This is a very intimate picture. I want you to think for a minute as you think about what it means to be the temple of God. I want you to think for a minute about your address, your home, where you live. This is where you hang your hat. Think about how you feel about your own home. 
how you feel about wanting to invite people to come to your home and show them how you've decorated. I want people to come to my home and show them how my wife Kelly has decorated. I have nothing to do with that. Once in a while, I drive a nail and uh, help hang a shelf But that's only once in a while. She does most of that herself. She's got an idea of how she wants it to look. And I love when people come to our home and compliment her on on how her home looks. I also know how I feel late at night when it's quiet in the neighborhood and the motion detector lights go on and my dog starts barking. And I'm roused from sleep, wondering what's going on. What's the disturbance? What's, what's happening to my home? This place that I think of as a safe refuge. Think about how you feel about your own house. How unique and how personal it is. How protective you are of your home. And now understand that, that God tells us in his word, you are my temple. You are my house. Second Corinthians 3.16. We are the temple of the living God. Uh, Ephesians 2.21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God is protecting his house. What is the uh, uh, Under Armour chant? We must protect this house. Did I get that right? God protects his house and we are his house. That's a very intimate image. We are the temple of God. We, not the building, the people, are where God has taken up residence. And he hangs his welcome sign. How welcoming is the temple of God to those who would come to the door. God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. We can't make it any plainer, any any clearer than that, can we? This metaphor comes with an explanation. You are the temple of God. God's temple is holy. You are that temple. Now, as intimate as the image of temple is, there's one even more intimate. The church is the body of Christ. How much more intimately related can we be than to be the various parts of one single body? Uh, not some, sometimes I, I, I think about the, uh, the image of Frankenstein's monster, composed of spare parts. Kelly and I rescued a kitten years ago on the side of the road that seemed like it was abandoned there by a, 
by an owner who, who, who dropped the kitten off on the side of the road in the weeds. And we were walking on our road and Kelly heard this tiny little mewing and stopped and we investigated. And here's this tiny little kitten, maybe six weeks old, uh, huddled down in the tall grass by the side of the road. And uh, we, we rescued it and took it to the vet. Kelly said, I thought, I thought we were just going to you know, take it to an animal shelter. But no. <laughs> we took it to the veterinarian. He lived with us for a while. And then our son uh, took him when he moved out. His name is Winston. I thought he should have been named Franken-Kitty because he's all white with one gray ear and a gray tail. As if he was composed out of leftover parts. And, and God reached over here into this bin and grabbed a gray ear and reached over into that bin and there's a, there's a tail that would fit and he slapped them together. How odd it is when a single body looks like it's made up of spare parts that aren't well designed and fit together very well. And I, I wonder how often the church resembles Frankenstein's monster more than it resembles Arnold Schwarzenegger. I thought that was probably a safe image. So I couldn't say something like Cindy Crawford or something like that because that could get me into some trouble. So I didn't say that. Now you are the body of Christ individually. You are members of it, 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven says. And Colossians 1, 18, we already looked at, reminds us he, Jesus, is the head of this body, the church. And uh, so we are all part of one body, each one of us, and Pastor John talked about this different spiritual gifts, how we all have a different role, we all have different abilities and, and uh, different purposes. Uh, every part of the body doesn't have the same function, but every part of the body is necessary for the whole body to function well and healthy as it is designed. I want to move on to the, the next image, and we're almost done, and I think we're going to be out of here um, on time today, whatever that is. This next uh, metaphor, this next image is the image of the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And if the temple is intimate, and if the body is intimate, then the bride is intimate in a very special way. Somehow, there is a bride related to the body. And, and Paul tells the husband, for example, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, you're supposed to love your wife as you love yourself, as you love your own body. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, uh, with the word so that he might present to the church that so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. I, I know that this particular metaphor might not be especially appreciated by a lot of us guys. Um, I just would prefer not to think of myself as the blushing and beautiful bride dressed in the flowing white dress, all lacy and frilly and carrying a bouquet of flowers and the little glass slippers or whatever else. Now, um, the picture of a bride is a wonderful picture. 
It's a wonderful picture. It's just not one that I easily identify with. I've been to a lot of weddings. And usually, I'm standing next to the bridegroom. And you'd be surprised how often I have been standing close enough to the bridegroom that when the doors in the back of the sanctuary swing open and he sees this vision who is about to walk down the aisle and join with him in sacred vows of partnership for for life, I'm close enough to hear the gasp that that groom makes. Usually I think it's probably, wow. Occasionally it's been, uh (laughs) uh-oh. But I want you to, especially you men who have a hard time thinking of yourself as the bride, understand this. You and I are invited to look at this through the lens of the father of the groom and the groom himself when he thinks of you and me in that overwhelmingly ready-to-make-a-commitment kind of a way. I will take you to be mine. I will cherish you. I will provide for you. I will nurture you. I will love you as I love my own flesh. And I will give my life for you. That kind of a way that the bridegroom Jesus speaks to you, the bride. I am committing myself to you for your well-being. Revelation chapter 19 gives us a glimpse into the scene in heaven. Let us rejoice and exult and give him, Jesus, the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And in that future projection, the church at the end of the ages is standing glorious before the bridegroom for the final marriage feast to commence. That's a pretty awesome picture. Finally, we have these two other images, these two other metaphors, and they're taken from the same verse, so I'm putting them together uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. The church is a royal priesthood and a holy nation. We'll talk about this royal priesthood again next week when we talk about the priesthood of believers as a a Baptist distinctive. We are appointed by God as a royal priesthood. We represent the royal family. Wow. Now I know that's a particularly un-American idea, the royal family. But it is absolutely who God says we are. We are part of the royal family and we serve the family as priests representing uh, the family in heaven as those who stand between heaven and earth. And we make intercession with God on behalf of the world that we represent. And we are a holy nation, a people for God's very own 
possession. This is what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, I love this picture, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is who we are. This is us. How do you join this church? How do you become a part of this thing that we've just been describing? You can't buy your way in. There's no application to complete. There's no initiation ritual to perform. You don't need uh, any references or recommendations from others to commend you. In fact, the work has already been done. Just Friday, I attended not one but two funeral services. I started at one and left and went to another. Uh, and uh, at both of those funeral messages, the, the line from the hymn, um, How Firm a Foundation, the line, Those Whose Rest is One. I wrote that down as we were singing. Those, I, I stood in two different places of worship here in, in the county, and, and I bore witness to two men whose rest has now been won. And in both of those places, a salvation message was proclaimed and an invitation to trust in Jesus Christ was, for salvation was presented. I was reminded of something I've thought and I've occasionally said before, and it's similar to something that Pastor John, you've heard him say on more than one occasion, sometimes someone needs to be born again, again. Now, theologically, you don't need to be born again, again, but the idea of Pastor John there and, and the thought that I've had over the years is this, whenever I hear a gospel message proclaimed, and whenever I hear an invitation to, to trust Christ for salvation presented, I know that I don't need to get saved again, but I do affirm the faith that I have. And the response that I made on Friday when I heard that gospel message and invitation to salvation was something like this, yes, that's what I believe that is the faith in which I am standing. I remembered that moment when I first trusted Christ for my salvation. When I first invited him to come into my heart, as, as we used to say to a seven-year-old child. I invited Jesus into my heart to save me and eventually I understood that meant that I needed to declare myself to him as his subject, as his servant. He is my savior and he is my Lord and I, and I bow in allegiance to him and in obedience to him. And I encourage you when you hear the gospel message and an invitation to trust Christ for salvation to do the same. If you've already done that, then just affirm the declaration you've already made. And so I just have a question to leave you with. And that is this, very simply. Are you in? 
have what I have have these things that I've been talking about this morning? Do they describe you? Do they resonate with you? Can you where you are sitting right here in this room or in your living room or wherever you find yourself sitting right now? Um, either right now live or at some point later on when you listen to this on a, a pre-recorded. Uh, maybe you're sitting in a car in traffic. Maybe you're driving. Maybe you're flying somewhere on a plane or waiting to get onto a plane or wherever it might be. Wherever in the world you are, whatever language you call your own language, somehow you've uh, learned enough English to understand what I'm saying, then the Holy Spirit might be helping you to understand the words that I'm saying to you. They're not my words. They're God's words. And God could be reaching through the speaker in your device and gripping your heart with His truth. I know that I am a part of the church. I am part of the family of God. I am in God's household. I am one of the members of the body of Christ. I am in all of my filthy rags part of the beautiful blushing bride of Christ. I am who God says you are my people. I will be your God. You will be my people. I declare you to be a son or a daughter. You are part of the royal priesthood. You are part of the holy nation. I know that I am part of the church. I declare my membership and my allegiance. Now I have to share with you, just before I finish this morning, there are some words that Jesus spoke that chill me. Sometimes these words have kept me up late into the night. They are part of his Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon. Near the end, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, it's not enough, it's not enough for you to think that you are part of the church. If you have not entered into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, if you have not confessed your sinfulness and need to God to say, God, I'm never going to be able to get into heaven by any good works of righteousness that I have done. For it is by grace that you have been saved, Paul tells us. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by reason of works. So that no one can boast. John 1, chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12. He came to his own. Jesus came to those who were his own. And his own did not receive him. But verse 12 says, But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Never mind what you have done 
at church. Never mind how much you have given or how much you've sacrificed or how many Sunday school lessons you've presented or how many prayer meetings you've attended or how many times you got up and went back to church on Sunday night back in the day when churches had Sunday morning and Sunday evening church, or all the other things that you might have done because you believed these are things that, it, that you do if you're a Christian, make sure that you are the Christian first and then do those things. Go right ahead and do those things. But make sure that you have come into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And you are trusting in his work and not yours to give you the identity of his child. I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you wherever you are to pray with me. And I'm going to invite you wherever you are to affirm this prayer along with me as I pray. Maybe someone somewhere will be praying this for the very first time. Many of us Many of us will be praying this prayer or one like it for the thousandth or millionth time. But I affirm this is the faith in which I am standing. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that every work of unrighteousness in my life has disqualified me from heaven, has disqualified me from being acceptable in your sight to be able to stand before God even now. I know I, des I deserve nothing from you but judgment and wrath. But I believe what you have said. Because of your love and mercy for me, you gave your only begotten son, Jesus, and that he came to give his life. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. And that's me. I was lost. He came to seek and to save me. And he has said, your word promises that if I will put my faith in you and confess my sin, you will forgive my sin. You will cleanse me from righteousness. If I will receive you, you will receive me. And so I affirm this morning that I am trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I declare him to be my Lord. And I thank you. That all the things that we have been speaking about this morning that describe what it means to be the church, those who have been called out and called in, I thank you that they describe me because of your great unfailing love for me. All the things you have promised to us, your church, we receive gladly as your gift of love to us. And I ask this and pray this with great joy and with great thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining this morning. In whichever way that you've joined this morning or this evening or whenever it is that you have joined, uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to encourage you. If you'd like to uh, find out more about what it means to follow Jesus Christ, to be a part of his family, to be part of the church, would you reach out to us, contact us by Facebook, uh, by email, by telephone, uh, Harmony Ministries, Middletown, New York. You can find us online. We're not hiding. We'd love to interact with you and answer any questions you might have. God bless you. Be safe this day. Thank you so much for joining.